WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. David Crosby passed away on January 18th. He was 81 years old. The iconic 1960s rock and roll star is best known for his work with The Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I spoke with Crosby in 2017, and on the first half of this week's show, we'll listen back to some excerpts from our conversation. And on the second half of the broadcast, I'll talk with the pianist Isaiah J. Thompson. He's one of the finalists in the American Pianist Association's Cole Porter Jazz Fellowship. Before we listen back to my 2017 conversation with David Crosby, let's hear one of his earliest known solo recordings. From 1963, this is David Crosby with Willie Jean. Folks back home About 12 mile road now That I used to roam Sometimes I think about A girl named Willie Jean Did she ever get as far You From a grassy bank Drink hot water From a railway filling tank Yet sometimes I think about Sweet Willie Jean Did she ever get as far as New Orleans? Sometimes at night now I think about Willie Jean And I wonder did she ever get as far as New Orleans That was David Crosby with Willie Jean Crosby passed away last month at the age of 81 I spoke with Crosby in 2017, and in this clip, we discussed some of his first ventures into professional music. 
which included a stint with the Les Baxter Balladeers, a group organized by the Hollywood bandleader Les Baxter, best known for his work in easy listening music and exotica. The first solo recordings you made that I know of, I think, happened around 62 or 63. I think it was before your time with the Birds and, and maybe after your time with the Les Baxter Balladeers. You recorded a handful mm-hmm. of tracks for a demo, including Hoyt Axton's Willie Jean and Dino Valenti's Get Together and a couple other tracks. At that point, were you trying to make it as a solo performer or were you just trying to you know, cut a record to get your name out and, and see what happened? I was trying to make it as a solo performer, but it, it, it certainly, you know, was not an easy thing. Uh, I don't think I really knew what I was wanted to do or what I should do yet at that point. Yeah, and I, I know you're not terribly proud of that association with Les Baxter's Balladeers. Uh, you did. Well, it wasn't exactly wonderful. You know? <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was it was corny, you know, commercial porn. I mean, commercial, you know. Uh, stuff. It, I didn't think it was that good. What you, you cut a cool record with them, though, uh, a version of Line and Track, which used a Fred Neal arrangement, right? So, yeah, yeah, ha- yeah. Absolutely, yes. Do you, do you, have you ever listened back to that record? Do you have any thoughts on that today? Well, not since then, no. no. I, 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 the truth is, man, I don't look back at all. I understand. I spend my time thinking about what I got to do tomorrow, next week, uh, uh, next year you know I, I i don't look back on my career hardly at all sure and it, i'm curious one last question about that that project les baxter was a weird guy to kind of be involved in the folk movement he'd come off that exotica craze doing the pseudo african and asian music he was just looking for a way to make money yeah he just and slapped he his saw, name on it he saw the christy minstrels out there so he thought he'd do one of those so he had no kind of control over the repertoire or arrangements or anything you guys were doing? No, 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 no. That yeah. was us. Cool. I, just, I was always curious about that. It seems so weird that he would try to break into the folk game. Mr. Cosby, I wanted to get a sense of your evolution as a songwriter. I know you co-wrote and wrote a lot of amazing songs with the birds. I think your first songwriting credit came on Wait and See from the 1965 album Turn, Turn, Turn. And had, Long yeah, had you been had you been writing songs prior to forming the birds, or was that kind of your first go at it? Uh, I started writing songs. I don't count any songs that I wrote before, probably. Uh, 
I think Birds was the first time I, I wrote anything that I, I would want to, you know, stick out there and say, I wrote this. Yeah. And w- one of the most interesting songs you wrote during your time with the Birds was actually not included on, on the record. It was intended for uh, the Notorious Bird Brothers in 67. You, you wrote the song Triad, which is a really cool song that I think you ultimately uh, passed on to the Jefferson Airplane. And I've heard that uh, Roger McGuinn thought the song was too weird to put on the record. Is, is that true? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I don't think so. No, I don't think it is true. I, I think uh, they weren't all that, you know, uh, entranced with it. You know, they're they're both straighter guys. He and Chris Hillman, I think, are both straighter guys than I was. Uh, but, you know, uh, it. Uh, I recorded it and I liked it and, uh, and, and the airplane recorded it and they liked it. So it, it got its chance. You want to know Do you feel like around that time you were getting your feet as a songwriter? You you were certainly getting more opportunities yeah, with the band. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. I think that's when I started writing stuff that would be serious enough. From the 1967 album Younger Than Yesterday, this is The Birds with Everybody's Been Burned. Everybody has been burned before Everybody knows the pain Anyone in this place can tell you to your face Why you shouldn't
That was The Birds, with Everybody's Been Burned, written and sung by David Crosby. He passed away last week at the age of 81. And we're listening back to my 2017 conversation with Crosby. Crosby issued his debut solo album, in 1971, an ethereal, psychedelic masterpiece titled, If I Could Only Remember My Name. The album received mixed reviews at the time of its release, but has since become an underground classic. And Mr. Crosby, your debut solo LP came out in 1971 on Atlantic, If I Could Only Remember My Name. And I wasn't around during the time of, of its initial release, but uh, it's become one of my all-time favorite albums, one of the most listened to albums in my collection, and it's become a, a huge cult classic as well. And it's, it's to me, it's a stunningly beautiful listening experience. It's very magical. There's abstract vocalizations and, and all sorts of experimental touches, but rooted in these amazing melodies. Uh, I'm curious, you know, how you feel about that album today, and if, you're, if you pay attention at all to kind of the, its resurrection for, for a new generation of listeners. I'm very proud of that record. I, I think it's a really good record, and it was, uh, it was a time when Garcia and I were very close, and he was there every night, and we wound up making that record uh, pretty much together all the time. And, and I loved it, dearly, deeply loved making that record, because I was just, you know, doing what felt good. Yeah, and a lot of the record, it, it doesn't sound like a commercial record. Did you get any static from Atlantic for kind of not having a hit in there anywhere? Uh, yeah, some. <laughs> <laughs> But it didn't stop you from, from doing what you needed to do. And I was curious about some of the kind of abstract vocal pieces on the record. It, it reminds me a bit of, of the work Tim Buckley was doing in that period as a vocalist. What, what, might you, what were you listening to or, or kind of your mind state that was influencing the direction of, of, of that record? Well, I was exploring. I wasn't listening. I was exploring. I was uh, inventing and exploring. I wasn't following anybody. I mean, some of that, that, I swear there was somebody here, the last song in that record is probably one of the best things I ever did in my life. And it was an improvisation. Uh, it's six tracks of, that I did one after another in an echo chamber, and there they are. Boom.
Yeah, it's a beautiful track. And, and there's another composition on the record I wanted to ask you about that feels very relevant today. It's probably re relevant at any time in history, but uh, What Are Their Names, which is a really uh, powerful protest song. Where, and, you, and you, like Masters of War by Dylan, it seems like you really focused in on, on, on some of the real targets, that these the shadowy well, figures. I mean, it's telling yeah. the truth. It, that's, that's its real strength. It's, it's absolutely true. Uh, the the thing that's amazing about it is that it, it's even more relevant now than it was when I wrote it. It, it is exactly about what's wrong with this country. The corporations own our government, and that's wrong. <laughs> uh, and uh, our our congressmen and senators are for sale, and they're all bought. You know, and uh, so that they represent the people who paid them the money, not us. And that's a complete mess. And it's killing our country. It's doing this right in. It's killing our democracy. Is that a song uh, you... I sing that song, by the way, every night. That's what every I was going to ask. Every night that I perform, doesn't matter what band, what organization, what place, what concert, I sing that song. This is David Crosby with What Are Their Names?
That was David Crosby with What Are Their Names? He passed away last week at the age of 81. The last decade of Crosby's life was perhaps his most prolific as a solo artist. I asked Crosby about his 2017 album, Sky Trails, which was written and recorded in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election. And Mr. Crosby, your most recent record is Sky Trails. And, you know, I alluded to this. You've been on this really powerful creative streak over the last few years. Uh, do you want to comment on that all? What's kind of driving you artistically right now? I think it's two things. I think one of them is getting out of CSN. Uh, CSN had devolved to the point of just turn on the smoke machine and play your hits. And it was, we didn't like each other. We weren't friends with each other. Uh, it wasn't any fun. So it was not an encouraging space for music. Uh, the the other thing, you know, so when I left CSN, I felt that uh, a great deal of freedom and a great deal of encouragement. I had a big head of steam built up, and this this sort of trifecta that I've done these last three records, yeah, it came out in a pretty short amount of time, and and there's another one brewing. So I guess it's a good thing. The other thing is writing with other people. Writing, I've been writing with some stunning people, man. I wrote that song, that jazz ballad on there with Michael McDonald. I wrote that the title track with Becca. I'm I'm writing with my son James all the time, and he's writing spectacular music. Uh, I I I think that's up to my auntie being willing to and eager to write with other young people who are talented and, and bring a lot to the party. Mm. And, and one song I want to ask you about on that record, and I'm going to play it in a minute, is Capital. And, uh, you know, we're living and we're suffering through this horrible period in, in history right now. And I'm curious, uh, what, how do you see the role of protest music, both personally for you and, and just for the society at large? During times like well, this, I think you know we we come from we come from troubadours in, in in the Middle Ages in Europe. Okay, that's what that's where folk music came from. Folk music begat rock and roll, which begat singer songwriters music. And our job back then was to carry the news from town to town. Uh, uh, and sometimes be the town crier. Say it's 12 o'clock in Allswell, or it's 12 o'clock and you just elected an imbecile to be president of the country, and it's not Allswell. It's f***ed up. It's not our main job. Our main job is to make you boogie or take you on emotional voyages. You know, but part of our job is to be witness to what's going on around us. So when you get something as egregiously bad as this Congress, which is the lowest approval rating a Congress has ever had in the history of the United States, and they richly deserve it, you know, you, you sort of sometimes have to take notice. Write it, write it down and say, hey, mother you're not doing the job. That's basically it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did it very well on that track. Thank you, man. <laughs> I, I thought we did it well. It's built to impress you, and it works like that. All that white marble and the guards at the door The metal detector The following eyes Geometric patterns Covering the floor 
signals of power, eagles and flags, attendants, assistants, moving like sharks. Through crowds of citizens, patriotic souls, visiting the capital and the national park. Before we wrap up, I did want to ask about one of your signature songs, Mr. Crosby, I Almost Cut My Hair. And I always heard that song is, is kind of a public statement, committing yourself to, to the values of the counterculture, even when that yeah. becomes difficult or dangerous to do. And I'm curious, you know, how you've grown with that song and kind of where it's at now, where, how you kind of view that statement and, 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 and yeah. I like it, and I'm proud of it. I, I'm tired of singing it because Crosby, Schultz, and Nash, uh, uh, I had to do it every night because it was a mainstay in the show. But I, I don't like doing things because of, of the show. I like doing a song because it, it makes me feel something, and I think I can uh, use it to help you feel something. That's a good. That's a good reason. And thank you so much, Mr. Crosby. It was an honor to, to speak with you today, and I appreciate your time. My pleasure, man. Come to the show because the, the songs actually speak better for it than you than, than I do. Yes, I will be there. Thank you so much. We've been listening back to my 2017 conversation with David Crosby. He passed away last week at the age of 81. We'll end this look back at the life of David Crosby with I Almost Cut My Hair, released in 1970 by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Cut my hair It happened just the other day It's getting kind of long I could have said it was in my way
be because I had the flu for Christmas. And I'm not feeling up to bar. And increases my paranoia. Looking at my mirror and seeing a police scar. But I'm not giving in an inch to feel. Cause I find this myself this year. I feel like I owe it. Someone. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. For the remainder of this week's show, I'll be speaking with Isaiah J. Thompson. He's one of the finalists in the American Pianist Association's Cole Porter Jazz Fellowship. And you can catch Thompson live at the Jazz Kitchen on February 25th. Check out Thompson's full schedule in Indianapolis at American pianists.org. Isaiah J. Thompson is just 28 years old, but he's already had a notable career in jazz music. Thompson has performed extensively with the jazz icon Wynton Marsalis, and he's recorded three albums as a session leader, including the 2020 release, Isaiah J. Thompson Plays the Music of Buddy Montgomery, a tribute to the Indianapolis pianist, vibraphonist, and composer. Let's join my conversation with Isaiah J. Thompson as we discuss the music of Buddy Montgomery and Thompson's recent appearance on NPR's Tiny Desk. Isaiah, I appreciate you being here today. And uh, first of all, I'm calling you from an NPR station, so I want to congratulate you on your somewhat recent Tiny Desk concert. Was that exciting for you to have your music featured on Tiny Desk? Yeah, that was it was extremely exciting. I mean, um, you know, it was funny walking in there. You know, you start to see uh, the way it's set up. It reminds you of a lot of things, you know, a lot of concerts you may have seen beforehand. And uh, just to walk in there with, with my quartet and, and for us to have a good time, I, I felt like it was a really special moment. Um, and I was just really appreciative to NPR for uh, allowing us to be there. So, yeah. Is it one of those situations where it looks bigger or smaller on TV and you're kind of... <laughs> yeah, it was kind yeah. of funny. It's like when we got there, I was like, oh, yeah, it really is like an office. You yeah. know, <laughs> you know, they tell you that but when you get there, you're like, wow, this is this is actually the environment where all this magic is made. So it was cool. Yeah, it was a great performance and uh, it was exciting to uh, see you on the Tiny Desk series. Yeah. yeah and yeah, yeah. I'm really excited to talk to you today about an album you released in 2020, it contained a collection of compositions written by the Indianapolis jazz legend Buddy Montgomery, a legendary vibes player and pianist and composer. Uh, his work is often overshadowed by his uh, big brother, Wes Montgomery, who is one of the iconic figures in 20th century jazz music. Even here in Indianapolis, Buddy Montgomery's legacy is kind of unjustly neglected. So first of all, I'm just curious how you got interested in the music of Buddy Montgomery. 
I think I first came across him because uh, uh, Don Sickler had showed me uh, some of his music. And um, I, th I think I had a few uh, lead sheets of, of some of his compositions and I was playing through them. I'm like, this is amazing, <laughs> you know? Um, and I just loved the way that he wrote. Um, and then from then I, I, I found some of the records, some of the, you know, some of the master sounds things, uh, things that he did with his brothers. And um, I just felt like I really connected with with his artistry, the way that he chose to play the music. Uh, and um, Willie Jones uh, had been a, a big fan of Buddy Montgomery for a long time. And he was definitely interested in, in recording and playing the music. And so they kind of were just like, hey, would you want to do this project? And I was like, oh yeah, I would love to. And it just kind of happened that way. <laughs> I think the album was very well received. But I'm curious when you initially, you know, approached labels about this concept or were kind of pitching this to uh, uh, journalists, how did that sure. go over? Because among casual jazz fans, Buddy Montgomery's not, you know, an immediately recognizable name to a lot of listeners. How did the kind of concept go over when you were, you know, cooking the idea up initially? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a funny question because, yeah, I've had people come up to me like, oh, man, I really enjoy that recording. I'm like, oh, wow, you listened to it. I, I didn't <laughs> I didn't know that uh, that that anyone was going to listen to it, not because of Buddy's name more so. I mean, it was my first recording. And like you said, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, people maybe had not heard of me because it was my first recording, which, you know, makes complete sense. And, and I picked someone who's not talked about as much as they should be, you know, so I wasn't sure if it was going to be received at all, not necessarily well received. You know, it was just, like I said, I've had people come up to me and say things and uh, I, I'm, yeah, I guess I'm surprised, but also not surprised. Like I'm, I couldn't have been the only one that, that recognized this man's genius. Mm. So I think I've actually been able to, you know, talk to people in, you know, all types of places and, and really kind of appreciate Buddy together I'm like, man, like we can we talk about this person, and that's be it's been kind of like an amazing, uh, blessing. I feel like to be able to to find people to talk about this very specific person and this very specific impact on the music. Yeah, he had an extraordinary career. Obviously, he's very uh, connected to the legacy of Wes Montgomery. But outside right. of that, you know, he was featured in Miles Davis's 1960 Sextet alongside John Coltrane. You know, right. he was playing with some of the greatest figures in jazz music. Do you want to say anything about his legacy and kind of how your appreciation of his work has maybe grown since you've immersed yourself in this project and it's a couple years down the road? Any thoughts on his legacy? Just to talk about the fact that he, you know, playing both piano and vibraphone mm. so well, um, I think is amazing. You know, for, for someone like Miles, you know, to call you that, that says something, everyone that played with Miles has has their legacy of their own you know um and uh you know i would have loved to hear you know more of him with miles you know that or you know that would have been really incredible i feel like uh i, I can't remember if someone said they knew someone or, or they were that person that said that they got to hear some of those uh, performances that they played together um you know especially before going over to europe i'm not sure he was he, was, he didn't go, he ended up not going, I don't think. Uh, but before they went overseas, you know, got, getting to, to, to hear them play, there's that picture uh, of them, you know, because when people say like, yeah, no, he was playing with Miles. I, and a lot of people don't talk about it. And mm -hmm. the first time I heard it, I was like, really? 
And I started to do more research and I'm like, wow, it's totally right. And I remember seeing the photo, you know, seeing him just next to Paul Chambers and, and train and stuff. I mean, just everybody's there. And I'm like, this is really incredible. I really would have loved to have heard this. Yeah, there's a really noisy bootleg of one right. of their shows. Yeah, which, which kind of gives you a glimpse of the sound, and it's incredible. He added so much to that group. So yeah, it's right. a shame. You know, both of both Buddy and Wes were had a fear of flying, and that's ultimately why Buddy didn't go to Europe with Miles yeah. and missed out on an opportunity to really become a part of that band and I think record with them. So yeah, it's a real shame that they never got to go into the studio together. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I. I uh... You know, I, I was told that, um, I mean, he was really close. I mean, he I, I was told that he got on the plane. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then he actually got off, you know, like it, it was, Oh man. you know, that he, he really tried to, yeah. you know. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it says a lot. It says a lot. And finally, on this subject, you know, you'll be here in Indianapolis in February. In March, it's the 100th anniversary of the birth of West Montgomery. And there's going to be all kinds of celebrations here in Indianapolis this year. Anything you want to say about Wes or just the Montgomery family in general and what their music uh, means to you? I think it's very rare that you get. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've been fortunate to see some like jazz families, you know, and just the the, the, the commitment that the, that all those people have to the music, I think is so special because, um, you know, I feel like jazz itself is undervalued. And so to even get one person committed to the music is hard. So when you see a bunch of people and a whole family committed to it, that's like, like you never see that. It's mm -hmm. like unbelievable to me. It's a phenomenon, you know, and for that, that entire family, you know, I mean, to be so good, you know, and, and, and to, all like compose in certain ways and, and, and really be um, rooted in blues and to have the influence that they all had. I mean, that's, that's really special. From his 2020 album, Isaiah J. Thompson plays the music of Buddy Montgomery. This is Isaiah J. Thompson with Muchismo. <laughs>
That was Isaiah J. Thompson with Muchismo. Off his 2020 release, Isaiah J. Thompson plays the music of Buddy Montgomery, a tribute to the late Indianapolis jazz musician Buddy Montgomery. Let's return to my conversation with Isaiah J. Thompson as we discuss his work with the band leader Wynton Marsalis. And Isaiah, you mentioned your connection to famous jazz families. Uh, I think the Marsalis family is <laughs> one of the most famous uh, families in jazz music. And sure. you've had the opportunity to work extensively with Wynton Marsalis, you sure. know, who is a global ambassador of jazz music, arguably perhaps the most famous uh, living jazz musician even. Mm. Um, how did you find your way into, into his group, into this <laughs> famous jazz band? He has made himself so accessible in certain ways, which you don't find a lot. You know, not you know, not because other jazz musicians have any malice towards young musicians. It's just they get busy, you know, doing what they do. And he's extremely busy. I don't know how he has the time to talk to so many young musicians, you know. But I think through Jazz Lincoln Center, um, different program that they had doing essentially Ellington. Composition, uh, it's a competition for uh, high school bands playing Duke, mostly Duke Ellington's music. And then they had a summer camp and they had all these different programs that have youth orchestra, all these things I became a part of just to get closer to the music. And so after a while, I just started to see him every once in a while. And so he's super invested in us. You know, um, I'm one of many people that have gotten to sit down with him and have them have him to show us you know, the importance of the music and, and, and to teach us. And I think that's very much in line with the, the legacy of, uh, of the music. There's always that sort of teacher, student, mentor, whatever you call it, uh, relationship. You can find that in, in all types of history books. Yeah. And Wynton Marsalis is known for having very strong opinions on music and for having exceptionally high standards for musicians. Is it intimidating mm. working with him? Is he a difficult band leader to <laughs> to play for? No, I mean, I think, uh, I think I would rather someone say what it is that they want than the opposite. I think dealing with being in a, in a, in a band or a music situation when someone's not sure what they want, it's much harder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, I think all the all the band leaders that I've played with, they've all been specific about what it is that they want. And I appreciate it because I learned, uh, I learned so much from that. You know, okay, this person's trying to get me to do something. You know, what is it that they're asking me to do? And then how they communicate that. And when you learn that kind of communication style, that's just like another, as you can say, like another notch on your belt of kind of, having a, this kind of tool bed of information of how to respond when someone's asking you to do something. So there have been times where another band leader said, hey, can you do this thing? And I'm like, oh, I, I know kind of what you mean because such and such had me do it when I played with them. And such and such had me do something else when I played with them. And so now I feel like I have uh, an arsenal, uh, you know, a better arsenal at least of, of information to draw from when someone asks me uh, or, or tells me what they would like to hear in their music. And Isaiah, I want to play a track uh, that you recorded with Wynton. In 2019, you were featured on the soundtrack for Motherless Brooklyn with Wynton's group. I'm going to play a cut off that record called Daily Battles, which was written by Tom York of the rock band Radiohead. Anything you want to say uh, before I play this track about how the group kind of interpreted this song in a jazz setting, Daily Battles? Yeah, I remember sitting with it, uh, and 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 me and Winton and and 
we, we just sat down and we we're playing through it and just trying to figure out what to do, you know, and, and, and how to interpret it without, you know, taking away or, or trying to rewrite it. And so I remember saying like, hey, we could do this kind of walk up thing. Maybe this could work and we could play it here. And he liked the idea. And then he is like, we'll do it like this. And I believe he went and he got the mute and, and that kind of changed everything. And uh, I didn't know it was going to come out like that, honestly, but it's it's uh, it, it has a vibe about it that I feel like really lends itself to the movie. From the 2019 soundtrack, Motherless Brooklyn, this is Wynton Marsalis performing Tom York's Daily Battles, featuring my guest this week, Isaiah J. Thompson, on piano.
That was Wynton Marsalis performing the Tom York composition, Daily Battles. That track featured Isaiah J. Thompson on piano. And Thompson is my guest this week. He's one of the finalists in the American Pianists Association's Cole Porter Jazz Fellowship. Let's return to our conversation. And Isaiah, before we go, I do want to ask you about your participation in the American Pianists Association Cole Porter Jazz Fellowship, a competition that takes place here in Indianapolis. You're a finalist in the uh, Jazz Fellowship competition. From what I know about this competition, it's a very immersive experience. And you spend a significant amount of time in Indianapolis, and you live with the local host family, from what I understand. Tell us about your experience with the uh, American Pianist Association uh, competition. Right. Well, everyone's been uh, just extremely nice. You know, you can tell they have a dedication to the music, which is which is beautiful. Um, and they just want to help uh, young musicians. Uh, I think, you know, we don't see a lot of that in, in the world, so... I'm super appreciative anytime I see someone and then, you know, they get a bunch of people together and they create an organization to support young musicians and, and specifically young jazz musicians. That's, that that's really special. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to, uh, uh, for the events to come and uh, it's, it's been an honor to be a part of it and to stand next to some really amazing pianists um, and, and, and always learn. So yeah, it's really a blessing. Have you spent much time in Indianapolis already, or is that is that coming up next month? I've been there. I've been there now a few times. I can't remember the exact number, uh, but more than I've been ever ever before in my life. So yeah. uh, I'm excited to uh, to kind of grow my family down there. Yeah, and Isaiah, I want to end with a cut off your most recent album, Composed in Color. Before we listen, is there anything you want to say about the overall concept behind this album? Sure. I mean, I I think that. Uh, you know, it, actually in line with, with Buddy Montgomery, when I when I listened to Buddy's music for the first time, I, I felt like a real connection to his music. When we talk about people like Cedar Walt and Bobby Timmons. Mm. He's a, I mean, he's a pianist, but it's not just pianist people, Freddie Hubbard's music. Mm. I, I feel like a specific connection to jazz musicians' music. And I feel like as jazz musicians, we need to play more of their music. And so Composed in Color was kind of this ideology and this, and this concept that I've been just dealing with myself uh, and, and advocating for, which is let's play the music written by the jazz musicians and, and specifically uh, musicians of color. And so, yeah, that's how I came up with the title. I said, well, why don't I make a recording called uh, Composed in Color? And it came out like that. Isaiah, I thank you for taking time to speak with me today. And I also want to sincerely thank you for advocating for the legacy of Buddy Montgomery. That's a really important uh, task you've taken on, and you've done such an incredible job. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. A real pleasure. My guest this week has been the jazz musician, Isaiah J. Thompson. He'll be performing at the Jazz Kitchen on February 25th. And you can check out Thompson's full schedule in Indianapolis at AmericanPianists.org. We'll end with a track from Thompson's latest album, Composed in Color. This is Isaiah J. Thompson performing 
the Horace Silver classic, Senior Blues. I'm Kyle Long, and you've been listening to Cultural Manifesto.